As was mentioned, our text is found in the chapter that we read from earlier, Daniel chapter 1. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll respond in song by singing from hymn 63, stanzas 2, 4, 5, and 7. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, this includes you too. What story comes first to your mind when you think about the book of Daniel? Most likely, it is the story, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. That would be in line with what the writer of Hebrews thought as well, apparently. In Hebrews 11, when listing all the saints who lived by faith, there's mention of believers who stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 33, to be exact, Hebrews 11, which seems to be a reference to none other than Daniel. But did you know that there were other times in Daniel's life which were equally threatening, if not more dangerous than being in the lion's den? That's what we find in our text this morning. As Daniel and his friends are given a special position in Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar sets before them the the best that Babylon can offer. But lest we be deceived, this was, as one commentator wisely put it, the world's den. And Daniel was given a a keen and, and discerning eye and mind to see it and to be on the lookout for the lions of this world. And the same is still true for us today. What we see here in Daniel 1 is a case of how we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not called to to withdraw or retreat from the world. We involve ourselves in the world, but in such a way as to remain distinct from the world. And this means we must be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, as our Lord Jesus Christ taught us. Daniel here exemplifies these traits in the midst of a a hostile culture, and we can learn a great deal from him. So the theme for the sermon this morning has been summarized as follows. God's grace triumphs in the world's den. We'll see first, Babylon's shrewd regime. Secondly, Daniel's faithful resistance. And thirdly, God's gracious reward. First, we look at Babylon's shrewd regime what we see in the in the first two verses of the chapter is that nebuchadnezzar was a strategic and tactical mastermind when it came to ruling his empire after he had defeated an enemy he did not adopt the approach of occupation or colonialization rather he took the best and the brightest of their youths, of the conquered kingdoms, over to Babylon. But he was not content simply with conquering and and, and capturing them. He also sought to reprogram them, brainwash them, conform them to the ways of Babylon. And he developed a number of techniques in order to do that. You could say in order to Babylonize them. 
Similar approaches as, as are taken by every culture which dictates to us a, a view of the world, a view of God, a view of humanity and, and of humanity's problems. Now it's important to realize that brainwashing can be just as powerful when it comes by a whisper as when it comes with a shout. Perhaps it's even more powerful and more dangerous when it comes as a whisper, when it, when it happens slowly and, and subtly, as the frog in, in the proverbial boiling pot could tell you. Well, we see that Nebuchadnezzar decided to take that softer, gentler, milder approach. And here's how he did it. The first step in the process was to isolate these young people, taking them to Babylon, removing them far from their parents and their teachers and fellow believers, and putting them under the charge of new teachers. In the new situation they found themselves, they were not able to publicly worship God, not able to hear the, the preaching of the word of God as, as we here are assembled here to do. Even as the Jews were able to do, to some degree, assembling in synagogues, even in exile, there was no possibility to associate or fellowship with other Christians apart from themselves, supposedly. There were no seasoned Christian role models for them to, to look up to or to seek wisdom from. We see this often in history with, with tyrants and dictators or others such as educational reformers, so they call themselves, who use the same sort of strategy that Nebuchadnezzar used to isolate people from similar people and other people to, in order to reprogram them. And then secondly, we see that Nebuchadnezzar indoctrinates them. Nebuchadnezzar appoints his minister of education, Ashpinaz by name, over all these youths in order to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now this was not merely academic or educational. It's a myth that, that any form of academic or educational exercise or pursuit is a, is a neutral activity. Now this was an, an attempt to re-educate and retrain their minds to think like Babylonians, to adopt a 180 degree different perspective, to instill in them a fondness for an ungodly worldview. This was at the same time an attempt to exterminate the biblical worldview which they had been taught and instead to implant in them a godless and pagan and anti-biblical and anti-Christian worldview so that they see things not in reference to God but in reference to the gods of, the, of Babylon and the ways of the Babylonians. Totalitarian regimes still like to employ this method and have often done so. Trying to get people while they're young in order to indoctrinate them into the ways that they ought to think, knowing that if you can change the way that people think, then you can change the way that they live. And so you can make them live in the way that you want them to live. 
But make no mistake, this curriculum was very religious. It wasn't explicit or overt, but it was certainly religious. In fact, every curriculum and all of life is religious. It's not religion is religion, church is church, but education is education. Now, boys and girls, when you do mathematics, that's a religious exercise. It's something that we must do according to the word of God and for the glory of God. And that means that, that two plus two is a religious question. Or how do you know that two plus two equals four? If the world is chaotic, as evolution teaches, then you have no reason to think that there's regularity or that there's order in the world. And therefore, you have no reason to think that two plus two always equals four. It might today, maybe it did yesterday, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will mean that tomorrow. The way that the truth is, is handled or, or mishandled, I should say, today in many different areas, like in the area of marriage or gender, that reveals this very thing. Now thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar seeks to seduce them. We see that he treated his captors very well, like princes and princesses, you could say, having them live in, in the lap of luxury and prosperity and giving them food from the royal table and to drink of the same quality of wine that Nebuchadnezzar himself enjoyed. They were to experience and enjoy the good life of Babylon in the hopes that it would appeal to them and, and attract them so that they would attribute their good and their prosperity to Nebuchadnezzar and not to God. And so they would attach themselves to him, to Nebuchadnezzar. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar proceeded to rename them. The chief official was charged to give Daniel and his friends new names, changing their Hebrew names to names that refer to the Babylonian gods. We don't always nowadays pay particular attention in our contemporary society to the significance of names. Parents characteristically spend a lot of time looking at names when, when they have children poring over books or, or websites to determine what they're going to name their child. But beyond that, we don't give a, a particular attention to the significance of names. But in the Bible, names are very important. And all the Hebrew names here were references to the God of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar employs the strategy of changing their names so that they no longer refer to the God of Israel, but rather to the gods of Babylon. And, and any good Bible, uh, a study Bible will tell you what the significance of the changes were. The point is that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to give these youths a new identity. Well, if we stop here and think, we can, we can see that the tactics of the Babylonian regime closely resemble the tactics of the world today. The devil has not changed or reinvented his preferred game plan. Isolate, indoctrinate, 
seduce and offer a new identity. And without one even being aware of it, he will eventually get people to compromise and, and assimilate into his kingdom. One that stands in opposition to God's kingdom. We can see that still today. Convince the church that she can keep in step with the world. That she can swim in the, in the world's entertainment movies, music, or pastimes. Embrace the world's values and, and fleeting pleasures. Subscribe to the world's definition of fun and excitement and beauty. And accommodate the, the, the culture's agenda. Whether it's her, her ideas of sexual liberty or pluralism or non-judgmentalism. Until all of her Christian convictions have eroded away leaving nothing that resembles true Christian commitment or way of life. And the makeover is complete when mentioning, just mentioning the concept of worldliness is met with, with blank stares, with, with cluelessness. What is that? What's worldliness? Or when, when cl our close acquaintances are, are shocked to find out that you're a church-going religious person who believes in God and the reaction is oh I had no idea that you were a Christian that's the victory of worldliness compromise when a Christian is made indistinguishable from someone in the world this subtle approach has too often proven successful but not with Daniel and his friends, as we see in our text, as we come now to our second point, looking at Daniel's faithful resistance. In verse 8, we read, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He determined in his heart and mind, first and foremost, to be faithful to God. And consider the manner of his resistance. This is particularly instructive for Christians in our culture in how we resist the, the forces of, of secular thinking in our day. The first thing that we discover is that Daniel's resistance was principled. Now, what was that principle upon which he took a stand? It can be quite difficult to figure this out. There's been a lot of debate over this, over the question of why Daniel drew the line here at the matter of the king's food and drink. The text uses the word defile, but it doesn't tell us why this food and drink would cause defilement. Was it merely because it was ceremonially unclean for the Jews? This may be true in regard to the meat, but nowhere in the Jewish scriptures was wine so prohibited. And so others argue that it was because this diet was associated with idols, with the Babylonian gods, most likely. And again, this, this may be partly true, but the diet of vegetables would most likely have been associated with idols as well. And so the best explanation seems to be that, that it's, a, it's a combination of these two things. Despite 
all of Nebuchadnezzar's attempts to, to reprogram Daniel and his friends, they drew the line here in order to show that just in this small way that they did not belong to Nebuchadnezzar, that he did not own them. Interestingly, it's been pointed out that they didn't resist the renaming or the re-education program. And that may be because there was little they could do in those regards. But the lesson that we can take from this is that not every hill is worth dying on. And not every issue is worth fighting about. There is a time to be quiet, to lay low, to avoid confrontation, and yet not be guilty of compromise. And there are other times when being quiet does mean compromise. But there is a time that it doesn't. And wisdom is needed to know what to do and when to do it. As one commentator says, in wisdom, Daniel knew the point at which his resistance had to be focused. Now a second thing we discover about Daniel's resistance is that it was peaceful. We read that he asked the chief official in verse 8 for permission not to defile himself. He didn't stage a, a vocal protest and, and make a big show of his resistance. He didn't take up arms getting ready for battle. He didn't confront or coerce. He acted with graciousness, asking, seeking permission to abstain. And he was able to make this request because somehow, someway, by his conduct and by his demeanor, by his attitude, he had won admiration and a good reputation in the sight of Ashpenaz, the chief official. Well, that somehow, some way is actually told to us in verse 9. God gave it. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of Ashpenaz. And yet, Daniel's request is still refused. Ashpenaz's answer is along the lines of, my head is going to roll. My head is on the chopping block here if the king finds out that, that I let you deviate from his plan and I won't endanger myself like that. But we see that Daniel doesn't give up at this point. He shows that he was also persistent. One negative answer doesn't deter him from trying again and politely asking the steward under the chief official to test him and to test his friends on a, on a short-term, 10-day diet of vegetables and water. And by God's grace, in verse 14, we read... He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. He was shown favor. Now, brothers and sisters, before we go on to the last point and consider the results of this test, there's something that is here for us to reflect on. We might think that Daniel and his friends were really something. They were really in a, in a class of their own. Men of, of such fine, impeccable character, uniquely gifted for faithful resistance, as they will display 
on even bigger scales as the book unfolds. But what's important for us to note here is that before Daniel and his friends display their faithfulness on the larger and and more public scale, they displayed it on the smaller and more private scale. And this is what true faithfulness really is. We're not to imagine that true faithfulness is evident only at such a time as when we impress other people on public occasions, but when we exercise our convictions in small things and in private. If we fail there, then you know what our display of faithfulness is on the larger scale? You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Performance for the crowd. And not an, it's an effort of, of people pleasing and not an expression of loyalty to our Lord. Now let us consider our final point, looking at God's gracious reward. We read in verse 15 that when the 10-day experiment was up and it came to the time of, of testing and assessment... It was seen that Daniel and his friends were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate of the king's food. Whereas the the, the well-researched, time-tested diet of, of the Babylonians, the diet of meat and wine, which was engineered to produce the best results, certainly better than a vegetable diet, The fact is that Daniel and his friends passed the test with flying colors, surpassing all the others. They were in a league of their own, standing out from from all of the the king's other servants. Here all the vegans said, Amen. Not so fast. For if you look ahead to chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, You read there, at that time, I, Daniel, writing, says, he mourned for three weeks. I ate no no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. There, we see that the diet in chapter 1 was temporary. But here's the thing. God honored it, and God honored it blessed it. It was not the veggies or the meat. It was God who made them prosper under that particular diet. God is in control. And we know this. We understand that it is God who gives the blessing. Is is there any other reason why we pray for God's blessing before a meal, boys and girls? Because you know that that food, whatever it is, no matter how good it looks or how bad it looks, is, is not just a, it's not just nourishment. It's only going to give the nourishment that we need if God gives the blessing. On its own, it's just a resource, just a substance that fills your belly. But the blessing comes from God. We see here that the credit goes not to Daniel or to the vegetables It goes to the Lord who gives favor. And the reward, look look at verse 17. 
We read, to these four men, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. In the midst of all the indoctrination and, and strategies that Nebuchadnezzar is employing, God gave his faithful followers knowledge and understanding, and not just some either but ten times as much wisdom and understanding as the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom, which sets the stage for the chapters to come. The success of Daniel and his friends was because God was at work. God was faithful in honoring those who honored him. And God had not abandoned his people in exile. He was with them. And he blesses them, and he rewards their faithfulness. He never stopped working out his purposes through his people in the midst of that hostile culture. And this fact also comes out in the final verse of chapter 1, where we read that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now that may not seem all that important on first glance, What's the point of, of mentioning that, that particular detail? Is it just one of those verses that, that has to get shoved somewhere, has to go somewhere, so that this is where it got stuck? Well, don't dupe yourself into reading the Bible in such a shallow or superficial manner. This verse may be the most incredible verse of the whole chapter. For while this chapter took place at the beginning of, of the people of Israel's captivity in exile, this verse is giving us a, a preview, a foreshadowing of the end. And not only that, it gives us a glimpse of the outcome of faithfulness. Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar, and he outlasted the Babylonian court. While Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire would crumble, Daniel would not tumble along with them. Why? Because he belonged to the Lord. Because he, before, he belonged to Nebuchadnezzar. Sure, his name had been changed, but his core identity had not. Now, we are in a different situation than Daniel. We are not captives or exiles in Babylon. And so we cannot make direct, parallel applications straight from Daniel's day to ours. However, having said that, why were Daniel and his friends ultimately brought to Babylon? Well, if you know your Bibles, you know it was because God was disciplining his people for their covenant unfaithfulness to him. But would exile be the answer, be the cure of this? No. Only Christ could. And so as any preacher of the true gospel speaking to a congregation of sinners, it's my duty to tell you something that you already know. You're not Daniel. But the good news is there is a Savior who has come to deliver sinful saints like you and me. 
your salvation does not depend on, on your ability to be faithful or pure or undefiled, but on Christ, who was pure and faithful and undefiled, and who grants us his perfect righteousness if we trust in him by faith. That's the good news. The good news is not be like Daniel. The, the good news is Christ. He was pure, undefiled, sinless, blameless, obedient, faithful. He endured the, the true and greatest exile for us, which, which was exile from God because of our sin. For, for what could be further from home for him than, than to what could be further removed from the, from the pure domain of heaven than to be placed in a dirty manger, to not have surrounding him the, the heavenly hosts of adoring angels praising him day and night, but having the crowds surrounding him, ridiculing him, insulting him, for him to become poor and, and deprived of everything, even of life itself, in the darkness of the tomb. What could be more foreign to him than living in this sinful world? Well, if Christ underwent such an exile in this world, why would we expect anything different? As those who are in Christ, we too share in his humiliation and shame in the alienation and, and the loneliness that, that he experienced, having that sense that, that this world is not our home or where we truly belong. As exiles in this world, we cannot live as those who are assimilated, who are impossible to, to tell apart. You cannot just fit in at, at whatever the cost. As, as Daniel, we need to stand out. That means that our life will be complicated as a result. We'll need to ask God for wisdom. The wisdom to make hard choices and, and to draw lines where we would rather not. Loyalty to the Lord is hard for us in this world because the world wants to squeeze us into her mold. It wants us to conform. It wants us... It wants to make us conform to its values and to its standards and not to, to stick out of the crowd. The pressure is on us, whether we're at school or at work or at home, in our leisure time, to just be like everyone else in the way that we dress, in the way that we eat, in the way that we drink, in the way that we vacation whatever way we conduct ourselves, in the language that we use, in the jokes that we laugh at, we're expected to value what the surrounding culture values and to pursue its glittering prizes. You know them, the glorified paperweights known as Emmys or Oscars or Junos or Super Bowls or Stanley Cups, whatever we're urged to be up to speed on. The world has not stopped beckoning us to, to join her in her slavish following and pursuit of its idols. And we need to choose daily whether we will be a part of the world in which we live or if we will take 
the difficult path of standing against it. The thing is, most of the stands that we need to take will go unnoticed, unmocked by our opponents, and perhaps even unadmired by other Christians. Most of our hard decisions are invisible to everyone but God. The truth is that the fight for the human heart is fought on the turf of, of ordinary life. Sometimes it may be spectacular and on the big stage, but, but most of the time it happens in, in school classrooms or hallways or, or buses or bedrooms or businesses or the parties that we attend or the company that we keep or where we go online or how we pilot our devices. It has been pointed out that there are two cities introduced in the first verse of this chapter in Daniel. Two cities to which everyone belongs, Jerusalem and Babylon. This symbolizes the antithesis, the loyalties that scripture speaks of in many places. Two gates, two ways, two masters. Babylon and Jerusalem are incompatible. They're completely opposed to one another. We need to ask ourselves, to whom am I loyal? When the pressure is on, which one will give way? Which one will stand and remain? Will it be the Lord or will it be his rivals? The question is not, will you stand up and be a Daniel? The question is, are you looking to Jesus Christ who was loyal to God for us? Because despite our disloyalty to him. Remember what your Savior did for you. How Jesus Christ stood in the place of condemned sinners and bore our curse and shame in order to atone for your sins and to reclaim you for himself. The ground of, of Daniel's faithfulness was in that frame of mind. He stopped the mouths of lions by faith, the same faith that, that in Christ we also must have. Believing this, will you be faithful and loyal to him who is faithful and loyal to you? Amen.